This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton City Council apparently is looking at changing the rules around city hall meetings and committee meetings. Uh, anybody who speaks disrespectfully at, about some of the council decisions could be booted out of the meeting. Why is this even happening? That's a question a lot of people are asking. And just how effective is this? And just what do they mean by disrespectful? I get Brad Clark into the conversation. Now, Brad, of course, is a former Hamilton City Council. He's also a former MPP and a cabinet minister in a provincial government. Brad, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Pleasure. Usually this discussion, if in fact it ever happens, is about counselors' conduct. Uh, I mean, these are, for the most, well, they're public meetings, obviously. If the gallery's full of committee meetings, whatever the case may be. Are you surprised this is even before us? Surprised and shocked, actually. <laughs> uh, it's an infringement of the, of um, free expression, which is a charter right in Canada, and I'm not sure even how they would begin to enforce such a rule. Or uh, under what premise, I guess, is really, what are the parameters here? What, what does disrespectful mean? Well, it's not defined in the procedural bylaw that they proposed, um, so I guess it would be up to the chair to make that decision. And that really opens up a whole can of worms, because as you know, the word disrespectful can mean many things to different people. If you object to a decision, just by saying you object to a decision of counsel, is that being disrespectful? And we've had some other rather controversial issues, let's face it, over the years, and, and we can go back as far as you want to talk about some of these things. But but I always figured in this country, uh, we, we had the right to dissent, we had the right to express contrary points of view. Uh, and and I know that there's a, there's a guideline, I guess, about language and about name-calling and things of that nature. But at the same time, uh, if people take the time to come to a public meeting, don't they have the right to express their opinion? A hundred percent. I agree with you a hundred percent. The procedural bylaw could clearly define what would be unparliamentary language, and the chair would can make that decision. Uh, and I, we've both seen it where people have been making some racist comments or or calling names to staff or to counsel and the chair stops that immediately and asks them to uh, discuss the matter substantively uh, and that's fair game but to ban any um, comment that is deemed to be disrespectful of a council decision that just seems a little bit uh, draconian to me well and it just doesn't seem to make any sense and and the, the you know the examples you've just alluded to Brad as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I, you spent a number of years down there, as I did. Those are already on the books. I mean, you know, if, if that kind of behavior is going on and, and the chair of the meeting, whomever that might be, decides that, uh, that there's, there's name-calling or somebody has crossed the line, they can do that now. So why even come up with these revisions? And no one is admitting as to where this revision came from. And so the, the question in the public is, of course, well, was this politically motivated? Did this come from the clerk? Did it come from the lawyer? Well, I can't see a city solicitor doing it because it, it just flies in the face of the charter. Um, but what's the motivation behind it? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously this is a staff report, but who asked for this? And you know, who thought this was such a good idea? And why did they feel there was a need for this? Yeah, they're not owning up to that today, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Running and hiding, as, as, the, as the case might be. But to be fair, uh, Councillor Ferguson did refer the whole thing back to staff to review, so it'll be interesting to see what the city solicitors actually say. I would have thought that they would have already reviewed the proposal, 
and commented on it, but they are going to consider the words of the delegate that spoke before them the other day. I guess without any any confirmation about who did what and who ordered what and, and why this is even before us, uh, we're led to speculation, and that's okay. I'll do that too. Uh, but but, <laughs> but <laughs> I've never known you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to ask yourself and, and ask the public about this. Is, is is this a response from some thin-skinned counselors that don't like the feedback and the pushback they're getting on some of the decisions they make? Yeah, and that's what it feels like. Sure does. And and we don't know whether or not it's the mayor or the counselors or just one counselor. Uh, so far, I believe Matthew Green has been the only one that has spoken out against the proposal. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, with some public pressure, you're going to hear a lot more people coming out against it. But uh, that's, I mean, the horse is out of the barn here. This is before us right now. It's just, in my mind, it's even silly to have this discussion, but they've cr- they've made us have this discussion by p- making this proposal. It should have been nipped in the bud right away. No, this is this is not happening. Your time as, as a provincial MPP and, and obviously as a city councillor, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb. I think there's probably more than one occasion, uh, Brad, where you made a decision that a lot of people might have disagreed with. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you probably still got the scars and didn't ever get the T-shirt for it. But it, doesn't that go with the job? It does. And, and we're supposed to be. It, and it's not like working for a company where the company can, can prohibit people from saying nasty things on social media about the company or the company decisions. This is an elected government. And so there has to be that interface with the public, and sometimes the public will take great angst over a decision of council and will express themselves rather passionately, and they have that right. So to inhibit that in any way, shape, or form is a slap in the face of democracy itself. Well, and, and I mean, we've both been at council meetings where the, the council chamber has been packed with people on whatever the controversial issue might be. You know, pick one. Expressway, if you want to go back that far. LRT, still hot. Uh, ward boundary issues. Uh, on and on it goes. And, and the, the, the procedural bylaws, as they're set up right now, just for those in the public that don't know, uh, you're allowed to make presentations during committee meetings. You have to obviously ask to do that most of the time. But at council meetings, that's usually not supposed to happen. But that doesn't mean you have to sit there like a bunch of lemmings and just follow along with whatever council does. Well, they, they've, they've rightfully enabled um, citizens to come in with placards now, yeah. posters. Um, but oddly enough, the new procedural bylaw prohibits them from clapping. So uh, if you're sitting in the audience and you like what's being done, you're no longer allowed to applause. But you are allowed to smile. Apparently you can smile. Okay, that's good. All right. I wanted to make, I want that on the record, all right? You are allowed to show elation. You're just not to be, you just can't be physical about it. That's all there is to it. And the challenge is, in a democracy, you're supposed to, to have this freedom of expression back and forth, and you're supposed to have a civil discourse. So if you're inviting people to come forward in a public meeting and speak, inhibiting them from saying things is completely inappropriate. And, and again, I, I want to reiterate that these standards are already in place. Name-calling, things of that nature, those are off the books. We get that. Oh, the procedural bylaws that are there right now work perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for the most part, there's still a few counselors that don't. I, th- I think I've read, maybe not read those yet, but I mean, uh, for the most part, they are. And, and, and i got to tell you something. Uh, there were a lot of passionate issues. I mean, the expressway was still a big issue when I was on city council, and there were some heated meetings, and things got a little crazy. Uh, a number of different times with placards, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of people that were vocal about that. Uh, the only time I think that they ever actually said, okay, we got to stop proceedings, was uh, when uh, some ne'er-do-wells decided to run down and actually stop the meeting and, and sit around and started to take over the council chambers. And 
that was a, a, a meeting that got a little out of hand. But other than that, they've got the right to come up there, and they've got a right to say, no, don't do that. And they've got a right to boo if they don't like what you're saying. That's that's the job. I mean, if you if you can't take that, maybe you shouldn't be sitting around that circle. And there's a bit of irony here because the councillors have the right to speak disrespectfully of a council decision, but they're banning the public from doing so. And let's be honest, there are many times where councillors go way over the line on what is appropriate or parliamentary. Well, and, and you and I have talked about that in the past. Haven't we? We've witnessed it, obviously, for many, many years now, where, where there are council members who will be disrespectful of fellow councillors. They'll certainly be disrespectful of staff. Which I think is blatantly unfair because staff don't have any 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 vehicle to, to to fight back or answer unless they're actually invited to to respond. And even then, they got to be careful what they say. So I mean, it's, it seems to me as if there's two sets of rules going on here. And as we know, the the current integrity commissioner has decided to disavow himself of any involvement in the conduct of councillors at a meeting. So I mean, they really should be looking in their own house before they start trying to impede public expression, which rarely has ever been an issue. Now, I have sat in the gallery at Queen's Park on a number of different occasions on key issues. Uh, actually got booted out once when I was on city council, but that had to do with demo, or with uh, downloading and a number of other things. There were about six of us on council that they got a little vociferous, I suppose. <laughs> but but the rules, there are pretty strict rules there, too. But, I mean, they do allow some latitude for, for people to be human, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, I've heard applause at Queen's Park and in Ottawa many, many times. Uh, I just think it's somewhere someone has decided to really rein in and try to control public expression at a council meeting or committee meeting, and I think they've, they're misguided. So where does this go? I mean, it's been referred back to staff. Uh, I'd like to think that whoever got this from staff just dumped it in the blue bin already, but it's got to come back to council at some point. I would hope that the uh, city solicitor looks at it, and, and they have to start looking at some of these rules coming out of council uh, through a constitutional lens. Uh, it's rarely been done at the city. Uh, I don't even know if we have a city uh, lawyer who uh, is an expert in the Constitution, but the Charter gives specific rights and freedoms to individual citizens, and council must comply with the Charter. You got one uh, another element to this I wanted to touch on, maybe not quite as important as, as the right to free speech and free freedom of expression here. But under these revisions, I get the sense they're also trying to give a little more power to the mayor here, whoever that mayor might be, since there's an election coming up. Uh, the mayor can already attend any meeting of any committee right now, but uh, this rule change would actually make him a voting member of any meeting in which he shows up for. And, and some folks are in, under the impression that, that that's maybe stepping over a bit too far, that, uh, that that could be a swing vote on any key issue. It, it, it really does create a problem. Um, an ex officio means that you can sit in and actually vote on things. Right now, the mayor can attend, and any council, let's be clear, any elected official at the City of Hamilton Council can attend any committee meeting and can speak at any committee meeting, but they can't vote at the committee meeting. And that's because the work of the committee is actually done on a regular basis by the, the members to that committee. To now give the mayor a special power where he can go in and vote at the committee level um, he could actually shut down debates and discussions when it's a, a close vote, and and it creates a power imbalance between the mayor's office and the councillor. So, again, I think it's a misguided 
uh, suggestion and proposal, and, and I'm hoping saner minds will, will prevail. Well, the reason I brought it up, Brad, because it was part of the staff report here, and it's it's kind of slipped under the radar because of the uh, the angst, I think, we've heard about about this first part, about uh, about decorum at public meetings. But I, you're right, I think this is a very important step that Council's taking right now, and I'm not so sure a lot of people would be comfortable with this if they understand exactly what it is. And that's not a reflection on whoever the mayor might be. It's simply, it's simply, uh, I think, a legitimate concern about granting power to somebody who may or may not even be fully informed on an issue, but still could have a swing vote and decide a policy. And I'm hoping the councillors really are aware that this is what this, this proposal would mean. You know, if you have a committee of three people or four or five people, and, and we have small committees like that, to have the mayor step in on, a, on any issue, and he's trying to get the right decision to go towards council, A, it's very tempting for the mayor to do that, and B, you're going to find the members of the committee feeling um, (laughs) disrespected by having the mayor step into the committee and push the vote in a certain way. Whatever councils do to this, I will find out, I guess, in the passage of time here, Brad, but you uh, spend a lot of time studying procedural bylaws, uh, both in the provincial and certainly at the municipal level during your time as, as an elected representative. Uh, even if the uh, the integrity commissioner has chosen not to weigh in on and, on issues like this, uh, what do citizens have as a matter of recourse here? I mean, do, they, do they have to file a complaint? Do they have to go to the Human Rights Commission? Um, it depends on the right that is lost. And yes, most definitely the Human Rights Commission is possible. They could also go to the ombudsman, uh, the provincial ombudsman, and seek advice there. Um, at the end of the day, um, I have found, as I'm sure you you can attest, most city councils and governments respond to public concerns. So write their counselor, um, get involved, and just say, wait a minute, guys, this is, you've gone too far here. And they're only a few months away from an election. This is not the type of thing that you want to be hanging around your neck when you go door-to-door. You know, as we have a new government sworn in tomorrow at Queen's Park, it's a, this is a great example to revive that discussion about whether or not there should be a province-wide integrity commissioner that looks after these issues uh, instead of on an individual basis like this, somebody who would take the the power of, a, of what a solicitor general might do or an ombudsman to try to, to rule over some of these things. I mean, it would, I think it would assuage a lot of the concerns a lot of citizens have now. Well, across the province, I've, I mean, I have reviewed different integrity commissioner decisions, and, and they, they run the gamut. And, and I get the distinct impression that some integrity commissioners, and I, I'm not mentioning any one specific, but they're more interested in keeping their job with the city council, and so they're being very, um, pr- providing great latitude in their decisions, and in essence, defending the council in many ways. Uh, and a provincial appointed uh, in- integrity commissioner would eliminate all of that variance across the province. Well, we'll see what's going to happen when municipal affairs uh, minister is appointed, obviously, with the incoming cabinet. But it's certainly an issue. And I've had that problem since day one. And that's not a reflection on Mr. Rusty or anybody else. It's just that I don't see how anybody can be an integrity commissioner when they're selected by city council and paid by city council and they're supposed to be objective. There's an incongruity there, don't you think? There's certainly a disconnect. And, and we've now seen it with some decisions. You know, I was really quite surprised to have the integrity commissioner say he does not deal with councillor conduct. Yeah, that was a head shaker. But the code of conduct, I mean, it just there's a cognitive dissonance there. And I'm not sure why the integrity commissioner made that decision, but it sounds as though 
he was leaning towards assisting the council as opposed to being the independent arbiter, which he's supposed to be. Yeah, I know, and I know that he tried to indicate that wasn't the case, but, uh, you know, as they say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. Brad, thanks as always. Good having you on the show again today. No problem. Take care. Take care. Former yeah. City Councilor Brad Clark, of course. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Timer's running out. Uh, by the way, we mentioned earlier that the new provincial government will be sworn in, at least uh, Doug Ford will be sworn in tomorrow at a ceremony in Toronto, of course, at Queen's Park. Uh, and, of course, we'll find out who and who's not going to be in the cabinet. But uh, one of the, of course, aspects of, of that election that night uh, when Ju- Doug Ford was elected and uh, the others for his majority government uh, is a vacancy on Hamilton City Council. Donna Skelly, of course, was elected as the the MPP for uh, Glenbrook and uh, and and as a result... Uh, there are some concerns about how the seat's going to be filled. Now, there's even some discussion going on about city council about how this should be done, uh, or maybe whether or not it should be done. Let's uh, jump in with uh, Larry Deani, former Hamilton mayor, uh, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his thoughts on this. How are you doing this morning, Larry? I'm well, Bill. Good morning. Good. But hey, listen, before we get into this thing about filling uh, Councillor Skelly's seat, uh, your thoughts about this report, about, about basically shutting down uh, you know, expressions of opinion at council meetings? Oh gosh, um, you know. So I, I don't. Because you you were you were the mayor during some of the most contentious of those meetings. I mean, I can remember a number of times when the council chambers were just packed to the gunnels with people, and uh, sometimes not really happy about council. I mean, I, I always looked at it as, hey, that's part of the job. It is part of the job, and it is democracy. Uh, and I don't think that you um, you should any uh, democratically elected body should shut down uh, input from the public. There is a section uh, in every committee and council uh, that, um, that uh, calls for delegations, uh, more committees, as you know, Bill, uh, which means that the public can come and express their opinions uh, or their point of view on any given topic, and that should always be allowed. But, the, but I think the, the nuance that they're trying to introduce is, is one around civility. Uh, and of course, um, expressions of opinion, even critical expressions of opinion, should be allowed, but people should be civil about it. So you don't come before a council and start berating them. And I can remember some times when we were in council where people came and said just some nasty things that didn't contribute to the debate. They were just nasty. They wanted to get that off their chest and yell at people. Well, you know what? Get a therapist if that's what you want to do. But if you want to be part of the debate, then even critical, in fact, critical debate is most important in ensuring that there's a good democratic a debate going on. Just be civil about it. That's yeah, and, and you've drawn the line, I think, at, at an appropriate spot. Problem is, this report doesn't draw any line at all. It, it opens it up to whomever is, I guess, chairing the meeting, I suppose. They don't even say that, who's going to make the determination. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous idea, and hopefully council it will is. deal with it accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, when are you going to be appointed the the council for Ward Seven? <laughs> so, talk about Every, everybody else's name is out there. Why not? You right. Know, well, wait a minute. They missed one critically important person who's got lots of experience representing Ward Seven. Do you know who that is? Uh, Terry Anderson. It's you. <laughs> you were. I, I, I've got a day job, Larry. <laughs> I know that, and uh, and uh, uh, you know I don't have a day job, but I've got activities that I do. So. 
obviously I wouldn't be interested nor a good fit uh, up there. Now we should uh, just set the parameters for this. There is there is a, a rule in place that uh, the council is supposed to be following here about appointment of people that uh, to yeah. move on to other levels of government for, for whatever reason. Yeah, and and that's that's sort of the dilemma that council is in, right? There's this rule, this law, provincially imposed that says, look, if if people um, are elected within this time frame, then you've got to uh, somehow appoint. How you appoint is up to you, council, but you've got to replace that person. Uh, and so we have this this anomaly, I suppose, of sorts, uh, where the appointment um, a deadline uh, was a few days before the election. And, and so if it had been a few days later, uh, then there would have been no need to appoint, but now the rule says you've got to appoint. So council has to debate that. And, you know, there is a precedent just down the road in St. Catharines where the council had the very same, uh, uh, the same dilemma, and they decided to, to rather than uh, appoint someone for a brief period of time, to use that money for some community good and, and not appoint. Now, the spectator, apparently, you know, our local paper, did consult with the ministry uh, who said that there's no, uh, there, there's no uh, way to avoid the appointment, although they added there's no, point, there's no punishment for avoiding the appointment. Uh, look, the reality is this, and if I were on council, I certainly, and, and I like Terry Anderson, by the way, if, if he's the person that is appointed, he'll do a fine job and he does have experience. But, um, but the reality is this, that here we are at the end of June, the beginning of July, uh, there's going to be an appointment. There are two council meetings between now and the election, two council meetings and a few committee, uh, general issues committee meetings. Uh, so very few. You're going to appoint someone essentially to do very little. You can cover off the administrative needs of the ward. Uh, there's staff in place to do that. If there's a political decision that needs to be made, one of the adjoining neighboring counselors, either Whitehead or Jackson, very experienced, most capable, uh, would they would be able to look after the political side if one is needed over the next few months. And I'd leave it empty. But it is a bit of a dilemma because, you know, you've got this rule versus what I would consider common sense. Well, and we, we saw this happen. Okay, so this is not the first time that the council's been faced with something like this. But, I mean, this is a rather unique situation with an election imminent, and, and it's only a couple of months away. Uh, and and there, there seem to be a couple of different factions on city council about this, Larry, from, from what I've been able to ascertain. Uh, there are some that uh, that yeah want to go the appointment route and uh, and simply say yeah we know that let's look for somebody who's experienced and you mentioned Terry Anderson a, a guy I worked with and had a lot of respect for and still do uh, as as a counselor uh, Russ Powers from Dundas has been named a couple of other people that have served and uh, then you've got on the other side of the spectrum you've got Councillor Matthew Green that essentially wants to to have the, the council issue basically a, a, an open call I guess for applications who wants the the gig for a couple of months yeah. So, and, and, you know, that's worthwhile. Um, if, if it had been a longer-standing uh, position that needed to be uh, uh, filled for a longer period of time, I think some sort of pro process, rather than tapping anybody on the shoulder, uh, would have been appropriate. Although we've been pretty successful in the past with different models, right? Uh, Bob Morrow, I think, did an admirable job being tapped on the shoulder when uh, Councillor Bernie Morelli untimely passed away. Uh, and he covered nicely for that uh, for that duration. I can't remember how many months it was, but it was a, 
an extended, a more extended period of time. And I remember when, uh, when uh, Councillor Ferguson, uh, uh, Lloyd Ferguson's brother Murray, uh, got ill, and he was away for a long, long time. We covered internally. I remember when uh, Councillor Bain, uh, uh, because of the untimely death of her, her husband, took some time off. We covered internally. And there are probably some other examples that I'm missing right now where democracy didn't seem to suffer and we managed to do the job that needed to be done for the citizens as well as council. Don't forget, there are 16 people on council. Uh, there are now uh, 15 people on council. So if for a couple of months and for a couple of meetings, uh, you don't have that, that 16th person around the table, I think you can still do the business of the city. And the reality is because of the time frame that we're in, uh, probably more housekeeping things than substantive things are going to be done at those meetings anyway over the next couple of months. Uh, there will be some exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, that's what happens at this uh, at this time of year. It's sort of a lame duck period um, uh, for council. And councillors are focused on election and re-election at this point, as are other candidates who are vying for positions also. So I don't think democracy would be badly served if they decided to leave the seat vacant. On the other hand, they may think that um, that the preordinate um, mandate is to follow the rule and appoint someone. Uh, and rather than go the Matthew Green route, which has some merit, but it's such a short process, by the time you get that process going, you're almost at the election. So to me, that doesn't make as much sense uh, than an appointment. But my preference would still be leave it vacant cover internally, and save some money. It, well, exactly. And, and uh, people need to understand, by the way, when we say there's only a couple of meetings between now and, uh, and uh, well, basically Labor Day when the, the writ will be dropped and we'll be full into election mode, uh, city council staff are the same as, as most of the rest of the population. I mean, July and August is when most people tend to want to take some holidays. So staff are usually short-staffed at that time because people are away. Councillors are gone an awful lot more. I mean, you don't, you know, there's never a public declaration. Councillor so-and-so is away for a week and a half, but that's a lot of the time they take vacations as well. And, and you're right. The two meetings are really housekeeping measures. Uh, there's no vote about LRT funding coming up in July or August. Uh, you know, failing some monumental event that could happen in the city. Uh, there are going to be no special meetings of council about you know pertinent issues that that need a decision right then and there. And even if they were, Larry, as you say, uh, fifteen votes is as good. As, I get that that people in Ward Seven are going to say, well, "Wait a second, what about our voice?" But you know, and you mentioned some of the people that have filled in in the past. I mean, Councilor Pursuta was off because of a, a, an injury yeah. for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, and so technically, the people in Flamborough were not represented, but they were. Because Councillor Ferguson, Councillor Partridge, and others uh, and, uh, filled in and stepped up and said, look, we'll look after the ward issues, etc. And, and that's really what people are looking for from their councillor. And, and even, let's face it, a lot of the constituents are away on holidays and doing other things. And, and municipal politics is not front of center for a lot of people. So why are we appointing somebody who's basically, for I hate to, to downgrade the responsibilities, but they're going to be a place sitter for six or, six or eight weeks and that's it. Yeah, well, and in fact, in fact, whoever is appointed will will collect a paycheck until the new council is elected, because the that council, um, uh, the the the, the uh, current councillors are in place until the election. So you're talking July, August, September, and uh, and uh, most of October. So that's four months. Now, if you know, in the grand scheme of things, in a one and a half billion dollar budget. 
Uh, it's it's not a, a lot of money if, if somebody were uh, appointed, but it is money that, that could be saved, and common sense at least tells me that it should be saved. Um, if council decides differently, then obviously everybody needs to accept that and, and, and accept that that's in their estimation for the greater good. But really, common sense should dictate on this one. And I know that once this happens, whatever the decision council makes here, uh, if in fact it is an appointment, there's usually a stipulation added that that appointee, whomever it might be, uh, should not be allowed to run in the upcoming municipal election. But I believe uh, in in some other jurisdiction, I think it might have even been Toronto, there was a a charter challenge about that, that you can't restrict that. So uh, they can say that all they want. I'm not so sure if it's enforceable. Well, absolutely. They can say that all they want, and it's not enforceable. Now, what they did with Councillor Morrow, and I know uh, Councillor Morrow told me this himself, and it's been made public, he actually signed a piece of paper that said, uh, and I will not seek re-election now. As we know, uh, uh, former Mayor Morrow also passed away untimely, um, so he wouldn't have, but but he was made to at least sign that declaration uh, just to add um, a personal commitment to, to not do that. And I know why council would want to do that, because they don't want to give somebody a, an unfair advantage uh, in terms of joining that very exclusive club that should be joined only through the democratic process. Uh, but, but you're right. If someone decided uh, in, in, in a different way, or, or if someone even signed that piece of paper, gained some uh, exposure over the next few months, and then decided to run in another place, uh, that, nothing would prevent uh, that person from doing that either. Um, so there are some loopholes uh, that uh, that uh, are gaping as far as that process is concerned. Um, however, the bottom line as far as this is uh, concerned is that uh, there's a, a technical rule and there's common sense. I know I know where I'd go if I had the vote. Well, and, and the point you made right at the beginning of this conversation I think is, is very important to this discussion is, yeah, there's there's a rule that's out there that says this needs to be done. But St. Catherine's Council said, no, we're not doing it, and there's no penalty for it. It's, it's not as if they're going to say, well, you know, uh, you, know we, you, you don't get any more provincial money. Nothing like that's going to happen. As a matter of fact, I'm sure everybody at Queen's Park would say, yeah, that's probably the smart thing to do. Absolutely. I'll bet you if uh, incoming Premier Ford were asked his opinion, I, I, my guess is that he'd say, save the money. Ultimately, let the people in Ward 7 decide who their representative is going to be, that's and they'll be able to do that in the middle of October. That's right. All right, so I can scratch you off the list then, right, Larry? <laughs> scratch me off. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great talking with you again today. Nice talking to you, Bill. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne. Uh Alexis on email at uh, bkelly900chml.com says, It would seem to me this arbitrary date by which a counselor needs to be appointed gives him or her such an incredible advantage over anybody who may want to run against them in the upcoming election. My suggestion is that whomever is appointed is prohibited from running in the upcoming election. And I know the council would probably put that stipulation in, Alexis, but my guess is uh, I don't think they're going to do it. I really and truly think the council's ultimate decision is going to say just leave it alone and uh, we'll just wait till the, till the municipal election. But we'll see. Council has surprised us before, haven't they? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I don't know if it's a highway to hell, but some economists and uh, business leaders uh, speaking at uh, Ottawa yesterday, the House of Commons Trade Committee, uh, are questioning the path that uh, the Canadian government is taking with the tariff battle that we're having with the United States right now. A number of them spoke before the committee and uh, painted a rather uh, ominous picture of uh, the econ- economic future uh, if we continue down this road. 
Well, are we heading to recession? Is that what this is going to cause? Do we have any other choice as to what we should do or could do besides the the path that the government seems to have taken here? Let's talk to Ian Lee about this from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. Doing well. Well, uh, you know, to listen to some of the comments of the folks that were up in Ottawa on Parliament Hill yesterday, uh, uh, it, it, it looks pretty dark for the future. Are, are they on to something here? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, the idea that a country that is so dependent on trade as uh, most all small, high-income countries are, I'm referring to the Swedens and the Finlands, and, you know, these are smaller countries, Austria, five, seven million, seven million people, um, they're vitally dependent on trade. And so when someone comes along, it doesn't matter the reason. It may be for really absurdly ridiculous reasons. It may be for good reasons. It really does not matter what the what the motive is. It's going to throw an enormous wrench into the engine of the economy. And because we're the much smaller country, it's going to hurt us a lot more. And yes, yes, this could, depending on how widespread the tariffs are, this could push our economy into a recession. And recession, just to remind everybody, because I'm sure everybody knows this, recession is another word for losing your job. Lots of people in every recession in our history of our country, when you study recessions, and there are some people that do, uh, you see significant amounts of increased unemployment. I'm not saying everybody, of course not, but there are significant numbers, and it's very, very damaging to the economy. And so uh, if uh, these tariffs are widespread, uh, imposed by the Americans and the Canadians, I, I think it's much, much, much more likely that we are going to go into a recession, and indeed, uh, Rosenberg, David Rosenberg, who is one of Canada's most distinguished economists, he's not an academic economist, he's the economist for a for Gluskin Chef, which is a, a large uh, pension fund uh, advisory uh, organization that are experts on pensions and rates of return and the economy and so forth. He's predicting flat out, unequivocally, a recession for next year, 2019. So, everybody, uh, put on your uh, seatbelts. Tighten them up because it looks like we're in for a really, really bumpy ride. Now, when you say recession, Ian, how widespread? Are you talking about Canada? I mean, because there are other G7 nations that are following the same path here. Yeah. He, Rosenberg, is only talking about recession. The people testifying yesterday before the House of Commons Committee were only dealing with with Canada. Will it uh, cause recessions elsewhere? I haven't, I'll be very honest with you, I haven't studied the studies enough, uh, in, uh, and I'm sure there are some good studies right now in France and Germany and UK, I haven't looked at them. I know that in the United States, because that's the one other country I study most closely, probably more closely than Canada almost, and uh, there's an increasing concern amongst really smart people, these are hedge fund managers, people that, you know, like to make money, um, and uh, economists who are increasingly expressing concern uh, about a recession next year. This is the second longest recovery in modern times in the United States. Uh, recessions and recoveries have been studied to death by economists and by government officials. And, um, you know, every uh, recession is followed by a period of growth, followed by a recession. It's called the business cycle. No politician has ever abolished the business cycle. Every business recovery comes to an end by the emergence of a new recession. And there are more people now. Two years ago, nobody was talking about it. 
now there's an increasing number of really smart, sophisticated people talking seriously about a recession in 2019. Well, I mean, the, the, the political angle you brought into it, I think, is is, is a, an interesting point, because every time there's an uptick in, in the economy like this, of course, the politicians are the first one to take credit for it. And every time there's a downturn, they're the first one to point the finger at somebody else for it. So, I mean... Oh, they run for the tall grass. Yeah, they, and, and, and I don't know who's going to be running or how far they're going to be running in this. Yes, yes. But, but, you know, you look at what's going on here, and I know that one of the uh, economists that spoke yesterday suggested that if they go ahead, for instance, with these, uh, uh, these counter-tariffs, as they're talking about doing yep. on, on uh, July 2nd, that he says you can almost bet the farm that Trump is going to impose uh, tariffs on the auto sector, and he said that's going to be crushing. Of course, absolutely. As you know, Bill, because you and I have talked a lot about this, I have from the get-go, from the get-go, I have never, ever supported these retaliatory tariffs. They are the dumbest thing I can imagine that anybody can do. There is nothing dumber or more stupid. I know that's going to offend some people out there, especially those people who think that the best policy is to try and pretend that they are Tarzan and Jane, you know, and pound their chest and say, we're going to poke the big guy bully in the eye and let's punch him in the nose as if that's a policy. That's idiocy. That is stupid. Unbelievably stupid. It is stupid because it will hurt us. Not him, us. We are paying the tariffs. Donald Trump is not paying those tariffs. The Americans are paying the tariffs that Donald Trump imposes on America. But he is not paying, and the Americans are not paying the tariffs that Canada imposes on Canadians. So how any politician who's got an iota of intelligence or common sense can say, this is a good thing to impose tariffs on Canadians, which will slow down the economy and throw Canadians out of work. Now, hip, hip, hooray, let's go and do it. I mean, I just don't understand this. This is just nuts. This is madness. We're marching, you know, into the valley of the shadow of death, road the 600, onward, onward. That's what we're doing. We are marching into the veil of the shadow of death. And it is so stupid because we've known for 100 years that this is the outcome. It produces bad, bad, bad consequences. Sometimes you've got to put water in your wine, even if you're a snob about wine. Sometimes you've got to put water in your wine. Sometimes we have to compromise. Sometimes maybe we're going to have to go to the big bully and say, you know what? The greater good of Canada is much more important than my ego as a politician standing up to Donald Trump. And so I'm going to go back and say, look, Donald, we've got to sit down and talk and cut a deal. And we've got to both put some water in our wine. We've both got to compromise. But this is madness. This is going down the road to Armageddon. This is dumb. It's dumb for your people. It's dumb for our people. It's dumb for everybody. Let's stop this madness right now. And just stop listening to these people who say, we've got to poke them in the eye and bring on more retaliatory tariffs. Dumb, dumb, and more dumb, and dumber yet dumber and dumb. I just can't make it more crystal clear than that. All right, okay, I'll give you one more opportunity to get off the fence on this, Ian. So, <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, the counter-argument to that, which I'm sure you've heard, is, look, at, if we give in to this, we're going to give in again and again and again and again, and we're just going to be subservient to Trump and his rantings. I, I'll tell you why I don't agree. Uh, once he has the New Deal, we're, I'm talking about compromising to get a deal to get a signed deal. Once you have a signed deal, you've got the signed deal. And then he'll move on to some new, his pet uh, peeve of the month or the week or the day or tweet of the day or whatever. That's the first point. The second point is Donald Trump is not going to be there forever. The Constitution of the United States of America limits every president to two terms in office. I'm, I am, yes, I'm taking the long view because countries must take the long view. Canada will be along long after I'm dead. 
long after Donald Trump is dead, long after you, Bill, are dead. So you have to take the long view because countries are about the long run. And all the people in it, including the people born, being born today at the Hamilton Hospital or the Ottawa Hospital, and that's why you take the long run. Trump will be gone either in fall 2020 or fall 2024. That may seem like a long time away for many people. I don't think it is. In the world of geopolitics and countries, it isn't. Am I saying let's celebrate Donald Trump as president? Of course not. I'm just saying that it's not the end of the world. We can, I think, come to a deal. My goodness, Margaret Thatcher said with Gorbachev, we can do business with this man, even though his ideology and philosophy was absolutely opposed to everything that Margaret Thatcher stood for and Ronald Reagan, and they still did a deal with him. So if they could do a deal with Gorbachev, I'm sure we can do a deal with Donald Trump. And yes, we're going to have to compromise. And yeah, we may not get the optimal perfect deal in the short run while he's in office. So, you know, you fight for another day. And you say, okay, we'll get the best deal we can, and then we'll come back to it, revisit it, and when he leaves office in either two years or six years. Okay, here's, here's another counterpoint. How do you negotiate with somebody that doesn't want to negotiate but dominate? Well, yes, no. I mean, I've been, I've, as I've said to you before, I've read every one of his speeches because I've done some papers on his uh, uh, administration on trade. I've read every one of his major speeches, not all his speeches where he just rants and raves. I'm talking about his, what I call his economic speeches. And there's actually, contrary to what's said in the media and by all the critics, that, you know, he's crazy, he's irrational, he's all over the map, nobody knows what he stands for, including Donald Trump. I don't agree. I just do not agree. There's a very clear message in all those economic speeches. In fact, last night he summarized it again. He says there's two things this administration about it. He says it's about uh, controlled uh, immigration at the border, which I'm not talking about, and secondly, fair trade uh, from uh, trade deals that are he believes are not fair. So if you want to know what does the Trump administration believe in, what does it stand for, what is its game, what's its shtick, two things, immigration and trade. And if you understand those two things, then much of what he's doing and saying makes sense, even if you don't agree with it, as I do not. At least you know where he's going, where his head is going. So we're not going to talk about immigration. But on the trade file, he wants to see some opening up. And I don't think they want, they're not expecting to get 100% of those seven or eight industries completely opened up. But he wants to be able to go back to his voters, his base, and say, I got the Canadians to compromise and open up somewhat on telecom, on a dairy on banking. And I, I think he just wants to see us do some uh, compromising and opening up some of those, uh, 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 further a little bit more opening up or liberalizing those, uh, those seven or eight protected industries. I don't, he's not trying to get a deal that's so lopsided. And so I still think that there, a deal can be struck with Donald Trump. I, I'm not being naive. I, it's in his interest. He wants to be able to go on the campaign trail and brag that he got that he closed the deal. He's the kind of a guy who brags about this sort of thing all the time. We just got to give him a little bit of some um, uh, food, if I can call it that, to entice him into closing the deal. And, and I think we can get a deal. Christy Freeland thinks we can get a deal, too, by the way. I was just going to ask you about her, because obviously with the saber-rattling that's going on right now between the heads of the two governments, yes. and, and Trump's made it personal, and that's to be expected. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's you know, what he does. We get okay. that. And, and, and some could suggest that Trudeau's kind of taken the bait to a certain extent, although he hasn't responded. He certainly has through policy decisions. Yes. Is, is the ball in Christy Freeland's court right now to say, look, at, uh, while, while they're doing their thing, uh, let the, we're the adults in the room. Let's, let's get something going here. 
I believe that. Um, I, I think that of the two, and I'm not trying to set this up as sort of a, a contest between the two, one's the Prime Minister of Canada, one's the Trade Minister, but I, I really do believe that Christy Freeland is the grown-up in the room. Um, she's got far more, far more experience than Justin Trudeau, and I'm not, this isn't a personal, but you know, he had essentially no experience when he entered into politics. We all know that. Everyone knows that, because his career is very public. She was a very distinguished international journalist around the world. She worked in the United States and lived in the United States, so she certainly knows, has lived in the belly of the beast. She lived in Europe for quite a few years. She's certainly been to Russia many times in Ukraine, because she's Ukrainian uh, heritage. So she has, she knows the Europe-Russia, if I can call it the Europe-Russia-Ukraine file very well. And she's worked with the Chinese, so she's got tons, tons of experience. And she's worked with the, these uh, the, 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 these big guys, if I can call it that, you know, these leaders around the world as a journalist for many years before she went into politics. I think she's got a vastly deeper understanding of the files and the issues. And I just sort of hope, I, not sort of, I do hope that Prime Minister Trudeau will just step aside and let her carry the file, speak on the file, negotiate the file, and let her present it to Cabinet. Because she's got the... She's got the gravitas, she's got the depth, she's got the understanding, the knowledge, the experience that he simply does not have. And because he's a young man, you know, and young men want to, you know, show that they're, you know, big, strong guys, you know, and they got lots of testosterone. That's the last thing we need right now. Yes, Trump's got that too. Okay, that's the problem. <laughs> we need less testosterone in the room. And uh, that's why I want Christia Freeland to uh, be carrying this file. And, and what's lost in this discussion, obviously, Ian, is the fact that a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a quote-unquote tentative deal. In other words, the, the relationship, so. notwithstanding the bombast yeah. that comes out of the leaders, yeah. uh, it seems as if uh, Robert Lighthizer and Christy Freeland actually have a pretty good working relationship, and, and they seem to be able to find some consensus on a lot of stuff. I think you are absolutely right. I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, I, I think they're both not only grown-ups, I think they're both highly consummate professionals. They both understand their files. They both understand that they're protagonists, meaning that they're on the, uh, you know, it's like two, two stars on two different uh, football teams or two different hockey teams. Just because they're coming up against each other, you know, Tom Brady coming up against Peyton Manning in that Super Bowl, doesn't mean that they don't respect each other. You know, even though they're on the opposite sides, I think that Lighthizer, uh, Lighthizer and uh, Christian Freeland respect each other very much, and I think that they are both very experienced. They both understand that. And I just w- wish that maybe the business uh, leaders in Canada the States can lean on Trump on the American side, lean on Trudeau on the other side. Both of you, will you just please leave the room and go away while these people st- cut the deal? In other words, Lighthizer and Freeland cut the deal. Well, those guys, those guys can go off and, I don't know, send tweets or something and give speeches. What's, what's going to happen on July 3rd, then? I'm on, on the 2nd, obviously, these, uh, these anti-tariffs, these, uh, these retaliatory tariffs yeah. go into play right now. Uh, what kind of an impact is uh, Trump's certainly not going to ignore it. No, no, he's not. He, I, Trump, of all people, will not ignore it. When the Chinese did it, he responded within 24 hours. In fact, I will even go further. Not only will he not, not, only will he not ignore it, he will respond by almost immediately. Uh, what does it impact? How does it impact ordinary people like you and me and everyone else? It's really simple. You'll see the prices go up very, very quickly. That means you have less money out of your pocket, in your pocket, because less money spent on a bicycle, a Canadian tire. Let's make it very concrete, very down to earth. This isn't pie in the sky. You know, stuff coming through the border, and we import gargantuan amounts of stuff. Most stuff, as I like to call it, the stuff in a retail store. You go into Walmart, you go into Canadian Tire. Most of that stuff was not made in Canada. It was made somewhere else. 
uh, from the States or somewhere else. Okay, a lot of it comes in from China. Uh, let's acknowledge that. But there's an amazing amount of stuff still made in the United States, especially the higher-end stuff. I mean, anybody right now, I was at, at Home Depot yesterday. Okay, I was looking at a John Deere tractor. Okay, well, those John Deere tractors are made in the United States. Those tractors will go up tomorrow. Well, I want to say tomorrow, within a, a, just a couple of days, a few days after those tariffs are announced. So there's a lot of people going into the various uh, home, uh, uh, you know, home stores, renovation stores, and looking at things like a John Deere tractor and that kind of stuff that's made in the states, uh, fertilizer, you know. And uh, so it's going to come out of our pockets. It's not coming out of Justin Trudeau's pocket. It's not coming out of Donald Trump's pocket. It's coming out of the people listening to this radio program. So why do you think any of you think that the tariffs are such a good idea if they're going to take money out of your pocket? I just don't see that's a good idea. But that's what's going to happen. It's going to reduce our standard of living because we're going to be paying more for each of those products subject to a tariff. And because our incomes are all fixed in the short run, you know, we have a salary. We know each of us what our salary is. So that doesn't go up when the tariffs go up. When the tariffs go up, it means you pay more for each product, which means you have less money left over in your bank account or in your pocket afterwards so you can buy less other things, less stuff, less other stuff. And so it's going to hurt each and every one of us. And we will be paying the bills, All right, ordinary so, Canadians. And with that in mind, Ian, who is it that's sitting around the, the cabinet table or who is advising the prime minister to say, yeah, that's a good idea, let's go ahead and do this, knowing uh, all the collateral damage it's going to cause? I, uh, my sense is it's not the business liberals in the cabinet and in the Liberal Party. There's, uh, like in every party, I think, but especially the Liberal Party, there's been a long tradition of so-called business liberals. Uh, I, I call them business liberals, sometimes called blue liberals, people like John Manley and Frank McKenna and mm -hmm. John Charest, people like that. And then you've got the, the opposite, who are the red liberals, people like uh, Kathleen Wynne and uh, so-called progressive liberals. I am pretty certain. I'm not in the cabinet room. I am, want to fully disclose that. I suspect it's the left wing or, or uh, progressive liberals who absolutely have an emotional loathing of Donald Trump that just makes them become um, almost irrational. And they are so angry. And I read their op-eds. My goodness, I'm not making this up. I read their op-eds. I listen to them. And they're, they're literally having hysterical meltdowns over Trump. And, uh, and I think that they're the ones who are saying, we've got to get that guy back, whatever it costs, no matter what, we've got to go after him. And they're the people who are advocating, let's cut off our nose to spite our face to get at Donald Trump. And he's got to, he's got to he, Mr. Trudeau, has to discipline those people, meaning stop them from driving the policy. He's got to be listening a lot more to Christia Freeland, who ought, I would classify as a business liberal, like Ian, a John Manley. Ian Lee, at the, of course, at the Sprott School of Business. Always fascinating, and thanks for the perspective. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. We'll talk again soon, I know. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.